the reason I wanted to get the three of us to talk about REM, you know, Matthew had this major passion project in 0708 where he reviewed like every REM song ever. He started a WordPress for it. And then Michael Stipe ended up doing like a, a Q&A with him. In a way, it was kind of also a peak period for independent music writing online too. Elliot and I went to college together, um, but he grew up in Georgia in the 80s. When we were in college together, REM was totally mainstream. So like nobody ever talked about REM. The two of us kind of had a very 80s heavy, super young love of REM. You're somebody who's been a lot more exploratory and tolerant and curious about their later days, which is fair because their later days are just as long or longer than the early days, especially at this point. One of my guests today is Matthew Perpetua, who runs Fluxblog, the original MP3 blog, and many other things, as he'll explain. Around 2007 through 2008, I did a REM site where I just wrote about pretty much the entire R.E.M. canon up to that point. It doesn't include the last two albums, uh, Accelerate and uh, Collapse Into Now. I've also written for a lot of uh, music publications, like mainstream ones like Pitchfork and Rolling Stone. And I used to be the music editor at BuzzFeed, but now I'm in charge of like quizzes, which is, is a completely different job, but a better job. More diverting, right? Yeah. <laughs> Elliot Bush Wheaton and I uh, went to college together and... You know, when you're in college, everybody's buying seven inches and talking about how they've, you know, they have the first pressing of minor thread or whatever. So, like, all they're concerned about is their credentials. And, you know, at that time, anyway, you know, music was a lot more of an obscure it and kind of play. And Elliot and I connected off the fact that he told me he was from Marietta, Georgia, and he had been an obsessive REM fan, kind of right at the point when REM was, was getting big. And the one I love was, you know, number nine in the charts. That's when we were like very first getting into the idea of cooler music. Like, we're like, 12 years old. In high school and junior high, they were definitely the linchpin of everything that was important to me in those years, where I sort of built it all around REM. But I, because they were so famous by the time I went to college, it was easy to kind of have a dismissive attitude about them. And I still had a was kind of a mature reverence for the band at that point because I had been with them for so long. It's funny because they weren't they weren't like a seven inch band. Like that whole thing doesn't happen until like indie blows up in the very late eighties, and then it really is in this mature phase in the nineties. So they they had singles, of course, but they, it wasn't like they had hard to find stuff. And what was hard to find, IRS was chucking out kind of really quick with Dead Letter Office and Eponymous. But the thing that was funny that that I just wanted to mention that sort of replaces that is. REM was a huge tape trading bootleg band. It yeah. was like when you'd go to a record store and they'd have cassette bootlegs, it would be like REM, The Police, The Cure. Yeah, you can still see the vinyl uh, pressings of those around. Yeah, like one of the first bootleg tapes I got was, um, was City Gardens. And the tape was like, the recording was way too fast, but I didn't know that. They played this really early, like people had heard about them on the scene and they were, this was like a New York area show where it's just like romance, stumble, it's all the chronic town, it's way early. Yeah, they probably played Just a Touch in there. So there's a lot of songs that like they just yeah. kind of hung around in the background until they turned up on later records. Well, yeah, and that's why I mentioned romance because I love that song and it's got gate on the drums, but like it's still, it's still legit, the eponymous recording, which is from that, that movie, uh, what was it, Made in Heaven or something? Yeah. Horrible. <laughs> That's the same thing I've 
Yeah, that was actually when romance showed up on Eponymous. That was kind of weird and kind of awesome, but it was we we were reticent to validate Eponymous because it felt I think it felt like some kind of if we th- if we admitted that Eponymous was cool, that we, we sort of were endorsing REMs becoming as famous as they were. I don't think at that age any of us would have grasped that Dead Letter Office and Eponymous was IRS just, you know, cashing every last check they yeah. could <laughs> to, to ring. You know, Miles Copeland was never um, a scion of integrity. <laughs> at the same time, like, you know, a lot of people around my age, Eponymous is one of the first things they heard. Um, oh, it was it was absolutely one of the first things I heard, Matthew. No question. Yeah. It wasn't like for me, like for Elliot. That's why I was so interested because even though he was so young, he was so close to it that REM Ari- was like what what Pixies or or you know Juliana Hatfield lived down the street from me. So I heard about the Blake Babies from like you know when Earwig came out because it was literally down the street from my house and and Pixies and Dinosaur Junior, all the stuff that was on Boston College Radio. I heard that super young and, and Elliot had the same sort of thing because that's REM, you know, up until document was, they were huge on a college radio kind of new wavy, weird, arty, oh, yeah. you know, arty level. But he had so much more of a, a, you know, closeness to, to how big that felt on, um, on a local music level. Yeah. That's funny, Chris, you bring that up. I, because now I'm remembering it took me like a year when we were getting to know each other. I was like, why is he always bringing up Blake babies? Like, I don't, <laughs> who, who gives a shit about the Blake babies? Why? And then it clicked for me at some point. I was like, Oh, Blake babies is his REM. Right. Okay. Because I was always bringing up REM, and I think our friends were like, "Why the fuck is he always bringing up REM? This like kind of <laughs> country, you know, country over famous MTV band." Which to me, everything cool in music was available at Camelot Records in the mall. Like I had never, there was no REM record that I didn't buy at the mall. Yeah. Um, and yet I had, I had, I had fashioned my sense of of uh, superiority to the rest of the world based on this band and uh and and they and i considered them totally like legit and cool and simultaneous underground while still available at the mall that brings up something that i think matthew has always made a strong point about which is despite the fact that they were from almost day one apart from the hip tone single they they had irs had deals with a and m like they were distributed at par with some of the biggest bands going, but Michael Stipe had always been difficult. You know, first he was retiring and shy and quiet and he just represented the kind of, you know, standoffish, I'm not into hair metal. I'm not into punk rock, you know, and I'm not even into like goth echo and the bunny men wearing black. Like it's funny. It's funny. You put it that way. It's like, man, it makes a lot of sense why I gravitated to that guy. Especially because it's like not quite fitting into like like goth or punk. Like those are things that I can appreciate, but that's not stuff that I ever was that or didn't really that those things weren't really like things that existed in you know where I grew up. And it it mattered a lot more too. Like 
getting an interview, you know, there's that famous interview where they got interviewed on some children's program in like 85 or something. Now, I went to University of Georgia, grew up, well, went to four years in Athens, Georgia. A lot's happened. Why is there so much underground there in, in Athens? What's happening there in Athens, Georgia? Well, nothing. And everyone wants to do something, you know, form a band, go to a party. Um, so you're creating your own energy down there. Sure. You sound Californian. You're, but you really are sounding, uh, making, you, I heard that you got together initially just to play one party. Is that right? We were friends and we wanted to do something that was fun. And that seemed like probably the funnest thing we could do rather than have a sewing circle or, you know. <laughs> Quilting bee or something. Yeah. Go watch the football games. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people form bands and they break up overnight. You know, they'll play two times and, and we've all been in them, you know, since this band has started just for fun. We'll play with, you know, members of Pylon or Love Tractor. Um, it's just, you know, entertainment. You know, like getting TV coverage, getting an interview or even a bit in Rolling Stone or some magazine, it was super hard to orchestrate that. They had very limited opportunities and like they were one of the biggest bands that resisted. It, it, I think that is not something that we remember anymore. And it was so yeah. fuck. It was so fucking cool when it was to me anyway, when it was not politically based and it wasn't like, you know, gender or sexual politics. It was just like. Fuck MTV, fuck music videos. All those concepts that became sort of boilerplate uh, stances for bands to have in terms of uh, opposing the industry that was funding them or whatever. All those ideas, came, I learned about those ideas from R.E.M. Like I remember very specifically reading Michael Stipe talking about how we wouldn't lip sync in videos. And, yeah. and, and, and being like, oh, I had never even considered that that's cheesy. Well, it's and, like it's, or, or, or printing lyrics, which they didn't do. Like, yeah, they, they, yeah. Did, they did one in green, but like uh, they started printing lyrics like at, uh, with up. I mean, there's just a lot of things where every time if, if they ever like kind of changed their mind with something, it was after it would matter to anyone. And they, they just would kind of just be stubborn and they just were they were just very stubborn about doing things their way up until even now, after they're gone, they're just very stubborn about what they will and won't do, what they won't allow. And it's they're very principled in a way that you don't really get as much now. They had like a personal code. I love how it's so incidental. They're not excited to be maintaining a certain set of principles or, or patting themselves on the back about. There's they're just yeah. they're not self congratulatory. It's I mean Pete Buck is great that way because he's kind of like, no man, it's just just don't be lame. Don't be, yeah. don't do, don't do cheesy <laughs> shit. It's not yeah. rocket science and it's not, and it doesn't, you don't need a book written about it. It's just like, it's just being cool. Look around you and be cool and shut up about it. I love the way that yeah. they do that. And at the well, same time, like they, they have these principled stances, but they're always reaching towards, you know, the biggest audience they can get. And I don't think they were ever like trying to be as big as they got around out of time automatic, but uh, that was just a result of always, you know, having the door open for people to come in. I think they, I think they cared about, you know, people hearing them, but I don't think they cared about necessarily having huge hits. People love to talk about how confrontational or, or, you know, I don't give a fuck, you know, Sonic Youth was Jesus Mary Chain or something. REM were playing like the most accessible, completely like old school twang rock and they had like i said they broke the top 10 in 85 which is fucking crazy and yet they were still like you do an interview with them and it was the interviewer was just like i'm gonna fucking blow my head off like this is so painful <laughs>
The Athens world was very. Uh, I don't. Have you guys ever seen the movie uh, Athens, Georgia, Inside, Inside Out? Inside Out, yeah. Inside yeah. Out, yeah. That was a huge deal movie for me. But in some ways, I have a feeling it probably didn't wasn't even accurate. But I mean, what can? How can you even have an accurate documentation? Yeah, close enough. <laughs> but there were so many bands in Athens, and I was just aware of Athens all the time from the time I was about thirteen. It, the story about it wasn't that it was angry or that it was that it was burning down some whatever. It was that they were having a lot of fun in Athens, and it was and it was smart, uh, oh, smart and cool fun. If you look back at like uh, really super early footage of the B fifty twos, it just looks like it's from another planet, and it's a much more fun planet than yeah. all the other bands are on. They come uh, out of that because like they they start off as kind of like. Athens party band. So they had the Lamar Dodd School of Art, right? This, you know, big liberal arts extension of the University of Georgia. That whole rep of Athens, REM is, you know, hugely 80% responsible for that because they're the ones who got hugely famous. I don't think I don't think the B-52s even were really stumping for Athens. I think it was the fact that REM sort of felt guilty in a way because yeah. it, everything happened and you get this when you read all the books and all the oral histories and all the you know dirty laundry shit people are just like fuck man they were unstoppable it's not like they were trying to or they were cocky or something but it was just like when you saw them you were like fuck you're like oh my yeah. god we're not going anywhere like i mean I, you know being pylon love tractor and these other bands you go and see rem and you're just like holy shit they're fucking perfect they're so tight like yeah. they have the sound like his voice it's you know yeah it's mumbling and whatever but it's it's fucking perfect it's just there There's not really like a rock star that was like Michael Stipe before. I mean, not really many really since either, but certainly at that time, um, I think a lot of the things I like about that era, like the very late seventies and the early eighties is you get a lot of the, a lot of the new wave people. It's just these people put like, just kind of, instead of like trying to be a rock star and fit this mold that pre-exists, it's kind of like, well, how about if I just turn a rock star into me? Like David Byrne is a good example of that. Michael Stipe's a good example of well, that. that. And that, that's the foil, right? So the foil is Talking Heads. Because Talking Heads is RISD in New York City. It's it's CBGB. Talking Heads is the definition of Metro chic. Whoever the tastemakers are, they're all pointing at Talking Heads and they're like, this is the fucking real deal. This is the definition yeah. of how arty and, you know, how yeah. intellectual. I mean, and, and, and that's a few years before. Like, that's like, yeah, the, of course, 76. Like, is, yeah. And they've got like Eno and Fripp and like, it's kind of like a, it bleeds out of like the mid 70s art rock. Of course. They're doing Remain in Light by the time REM's even got the hip tone single out. But my point is sort of that, like, that whole period ends for Talking Heads and they start doing And She Was. You know, they enter the same arena that REM is in by the time of, you know, Speaking in Tongues and. Yeah, um, Speaking in Tongues and Murmur the same year. Yeah. And then right after that, you've got. Wow. Soon Soon after that, they have they do and she was and and are, the one I love is is in the top ten. If you look back at the charts, man, you know we look back and it's like yeah, these were huge records in '83 when Murmurs out and when when Speaking in Tongues is about to come out. It's still all British bands, like all the stuff yeah. that's charting. It's fucking 
Thomas Dolby, Ultravox, Heaven 17, Culture Club, fucking English Beat. And that's in America. Yeah, it's Echo and the Bunny Man, too. Yeah, yeah. It's all still, and they're on major labels. They're on U2. Mercury. U2 is on Island. When, when REM starts getting noticed and, and there starts to be a commercial American underground, and Talking Heads really rise to the top of it because they were already established. The college charts and the, the like, the kid music was all British. It was all new wave shit. Well, yeah, Ariane is just like so incredibly American. They're just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's such the core of their personality. And like I've talked to like uh, Bradford Cox from Deer Hunter a few times, and we've talked about R.A.M. and like he always he really emphasizes like how much the Americanness and the the Georgia ness of them, like how much that had an impact on him. I don't know. I maybe would. I maybe would argue driving and crying, Elliot. What do you think? Yeah, that's funny because like I, I, the, I, I love Bradford. <laughs> I love Bradford Cox. Fine, I mean, but, but it just scarred, scarred but smarter was a very big hit in the world. Oh, man. I grew driving, up in. And cry, driving and crying was huge. But anyway, sorry, Matthew, yeah. go ahead. They yeah. are a definitively American band. They, they are their college kid band. That's what it sounds like to be a college band. Yeah, I mean, also you just listen to it; it just doesn't sound like England. There's a lot of American bands that kind of sound a bit like England, and you just don't get that in REM. REM just sounds. Just like, I don't know, it doesn't sound like it could even even come from Canada. All those bands, all the American bands that came out at that time, fucking Translator, they all sounded like they were just ripping on Echo and Cure and all that shit. And yeah, you're right. Like, that was one thing that was so cool about R.E.M. Like, even Talking Heads, super posy, you know, African rhythms, whatever bullshit. R.E.M.'s like, it's the birds. It's just, it's the birds. Look, can we yeah. turn, turn, turn? Let's go back to Yeah. That. I mean, look, another thing about R.E.M. is like, almost all of their songs, like, at the center of it is a folk song. You know, like a very birds folk song. And like, well, this kind of dress it in different ways. Welcome to the occupation on Document. There is a, they released like an acoustic version of that at some point. It's a straight up folk song. And then you listen on Document, it has like those big gated drums. And it's just, a, it just sounds like, oh, this is how you play it in an arena. Well, that yeah, that's the problem with Document is the fucking gated drums. But like going back to the thing about the American piece, like I just. It was so weird and off kilter. And yeah. I got and I and I did, definitely heard the the birds thing with which I was familiar. Like I, I never liked Rockville. Like don't go back to Rockville that much because I was kind of like no 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 no. The this the band is this other band. They're supposed to be doing this weird kind of warbly yeah. 
the first song that I was obsessed with was the Chronic Town version of Gardening at Night. So that version, yeah. not yeah. the tight, not the tight version that's on Eponymous, um, that blurry, twangy, reverb version. I, I I was stunned when I saw. I don't know if I want to say general, but even some kind of sentiment that that was like an inferior version. Didn't didn't Pete Buck even say that in the liner notes of Eponymous that mm, he thought? said it was like so much better than the version on Quantic Town. I was like, that's your best fucking song. Like every... <laughs> Every mixtape, every mixtape I made for a period of like probably two years, guaranteed Galaxy 500's cover of New Order Ceremony, Gardening at Night, like, uh, and then <laughs> it was probably around 90. So like the church, uh, Metropolis, like th this whole like twangy, big cathedral sound, you know, the fact that Gardening at Night is, is like, you know, six, seven years earlier, it still fits right in with that proto kind of, you know, dreary, dreamy thing that turns into shoegaze, which... Yeah totally informed my whole teenage experience. I had document in green probably by the time I was like 10 or 11. Wow. Um, so that's purely from like stand and the one I love. And like, those would be on like the top 40. And I, like, I was the kind of kid who listened to top 40 every Sunday. That seems like crazy young in a way, even, even if it's on the radio, that still seems like something that, because for us, that's like teen music. It's different. You know what I mean? Like, particularly Document and Green are still not, they haven't turned the corner yet. Yeah. And I don't, God, I think, I mean, I obviously knew the out of time stuff in the time it was out, like the big hits. But I think I actually bought that after I had Automatic with people. Automatic with people is probably the one, like, where I come in and I'm actually, like, paying attention. And that's, like, when I'm, you know, more engaged. I'm about 12 or 13 at the time. And then I'm with them real time from there. So I think uh, all of the narrative I had, I'd picked up from, you know, th books and magazines and things like that. Okay. It's complete change of pace. Life's Rich Pageant was produced by John Cougar Mellencamp's lifetime producer, Don Gaiman. Yeah. The guy who did Jack and Diane, the guy who did like, uh-huh uh is one of the best records of the eighties. If it wasn't for Thriller, I think uh-huh would get a lot more attention that it deserves <laughs> crumbling down is a fucking jam it is a great fucking rock song i am the biggest stand for john mellencamp you have no idea chris I, I i love that i know you and that you're the kind of person who would introduce this information as if it's a huge deal i mean <laughs> well no i mean like dude it's this a, guy did dude, okay apart from here check Here's why I mentioned it. Here's why I mentioned it. He did the weirdest, most British, I would say British sounding, maybe Reckoning is an argument. I think Life's Rich Pageant is is very, that and Reckoning to me are their two best albums. The the one that's, you're saying those sound like more British, like the, uh, more than the one that was actually recorded in England, which would be Fables. Fables was obviously that, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Sorry. I was saying Reckoning sounds like it because it's so reverb heavy, but you're right. Obviously then they actually went there and they had that horrific yeah. period of just like alcoholic despond when they did you read it was it mojo that did that huge feature yeah yeah oh god that fucking is so good there's this incredible issue elliot it's the most self-absorbed nobody but the guy who wrote it would ever give a shit about this but it's like this like 
20,000 word history of the recording of Fables of the Reconstruction in England. Uh, and it is the most original, beautiful thing, like for an REM fan that you would never have heard or, or, or understood. That's, I don't, I don't know if I could read that, man. It's kind of like, cause that's my favorite REM album. And they're always uh, very How can that be? That? There's no way. There's no way that's your favorite REM album. Fables? Yeah, that's my favorite. That's, e- that's, 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 a, that's my easy favorite. Fables is my that's least crazy. favorite of the IRS records. But it has like my, but it has my probably my favorite song of the IRS period, which would be Life and How to Live It. Oh, Life and How to Live It. Oh. God, that's feeling it. gravity's pull. I mean, those are just completely perfect songs. Feeling gravity's pull was the one that that fucked everything up for them because when people got that record, they put it on, they were like, "What is this fucking Joy Division? This is cr-. <laughs> like it was so dark." Yeah, it sounds it was like dirge. exercise one. But I, I agree, Life and How to Live It, that song has so much pop to it, and it moves. like So good live, too. Like Even until like the later periods when... like Actually, my favorite version of that song is like a live recording from 2003 that I have. Like The, the, the highest level of energy in that song, and it's like... It's just fantastic. Isn't that Mills' like favorite REM song ever? I think it's like I think like a lot of them. It's like one. It's definitely one of their all-time favorites. Like it's it, it really stands out. And I always, when I was a kid, I always loved Driver Eight. It's so simple. It's just got like you talk about Americana. That to me, that's the, the quote-unquote true REM. But how do you def- how do you defend Old Man Kenzie, dude? Oh, I love that song, man. <laughs> I, I love I love all that swampy, very dark kind of like it's like rem's pornography oh man it so is that's great you know what i mean it's well that this is like the the rem that i had sort of dreamt up in my head as i was as i was or i mean i came to that album after i got um, like on my first REM record was Life's Rich Pageant. And I was like, okay, yeah, no, this is right. Okay, this is, so these guys are who I thought they were. Yeah, they're very American. It's like an Americanized yeah. version of a British idea, but it's like all, it's like wooded and muddy and hard to, you don't know what you're hearing exactly. And uh, the Elliot. mood is very, it moves around. Yeah, anyway, I loved it. <laughs> Ellie, do you think that maybe part of your connection to that one is because that's the one that's most like overtly the South? I mean, yes, but I think it's because it, it brought me to the southernness of REM and and that's what opened up the idea of loving REM as a southern band and like this sort of 
I hate this phrase, but like the Southern Gothic kind of idea. Yeah. I hadn't really tapped into it all at that point. And then I was kind of, and then seeing Athens, Georgia inside out and going, okay, there's this whole world of like of this mystique that I am super fascinated with. You opened the door by mentioning pornography, right? Yeah. REM is what it's one of these bands like the cure where if you were a fan of this band up to, you know, 92 or whatever, uh, you know, they're big crossover periods. You could spend nine hours talking about which of the preceding five or six records was your favorite. Like the investment in the R in REM's IRS albums, you could we, like, we could seriously do a podcast on every album. Oh, just, yeah. just Oh yeah. Easily. Just, just rambling in, you know, memories, whatever. The, you, you, like, know, you know, that would be, that would be like that, uh, YouTube podcast, but we would actually talk. Oh about God. Talk about the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, but this, but this is my, I, like, I can't imagine being that invested in YouTube. I cannot, because how can you feel like you, I, I, there's nothing about YouTube that's personal. Nothing. They have never made a personal song in their lives. <laughs> everything about our sure everything about our yeah it didn't seem that way at the time but it does now oh it did to me i i mean i loved octung baby and joshua tree but i love them as like gigantic stratospheric you know yeah. embodiments you know even when there is like a, a personal element to you two songs it is kind of like at a distance like they're always like trying to connect with well, so they were many all, like, people so, that they were because they were psycho christians they yeah. were all like you know they, the they, they had he was yeah he wasn't exactly he was an evangelical they were the most histrionic you know like he was obsessed with ian curtis for all the wrong reasons <laughs> like you know, I, I think he thought he i think bono is just interested in what it must be like to be a person with a personality and he's sort of exploring <laughs> that idea. oh god I, I i would kind of go the other way i think like that guy would probably be a lot more tolerable if he had like 70 percent less personality <laughs> but no t- but all of his personality is artifice you know like mac fisto and all this bullshit like yeah. oh my god he was, dude he was realer when he was mac fisto than he is when he's by himself in his apartment i think that's Abs- that absolutely or, or being the absolutely fly, you know <laughs> yeah. Dude, his hair, his hair, the last time I saw him in public was worse than Travolta or Steven Seagal's. <laughs> like, <laughs> so around the late 90s or the mid to late 90s, like, he's actually like letting it go and like, maybe I'll just age gracefully. And, you know, Pop doesn't do that well. It's like, nope. And it's just like, like a big Elvis wig. Right. And he doesn't look back since. And say what you will about REM's success, and which was sort of. I guess it was kind of contemporary with U2. So I don't really thought about it, but I guess it must have been. I grew up thinking of U2 and REM very parallel. Everyone did. That That was American college. American college rock was U2, REM, The Cure, maybe Echo and the Bunnymen. Like, that's what you said when someone asked you, would you listen to? You say, I'm into like college rock, you know, like U2, REM, The Cure. Bam. Yeah, that's, that's the American yeah. white suburbs, like in the 80s. That's it. You were kind of either a U2 person or an REM person in a certain category. <laughs> and then there was another sort of, among more serious cool people, there was like, are you a Cure person or an REM person? Like the Cure people didn't have much use for the REM people. It was like too gritty, too American, yeah. you know? Well, but so here's where that crosses over. And Matthew made a comment that I seized on. It was a tweet you made about the suggestion that Michael Stipe's explicit conversations about sexuality and, you know, gay rights, etc., being a point at which people maybe, you know, 
got turned off. And I actually really disagree with that. Um, I think that the, they coincidentally started to suck at that time. Well, I mean, wh- 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 where are we talking here? Like, where in the timeline are we right now? <laughs> so wait, I, I think I think the the whole like uh, rock the vote top hat period <laughs> is when he got really political and uh, not derby. I guess derby period. He got really political and expressly political, and I feel like they they so fell off after automatic. But what I wanted to say about that because I actually disagree because I think the Green Tour when he knew he had the biggest audience in front of him that he'd had to that point, and they did the pop the pop tour film was it called tour film. Sorry. Yeah. They knew they were on Warner's and they're like, we got all this money in this budget. We're going to do a fucking tour movie. That's when he's, he starts doing the eye makeup and he's, he's not saying it. He's not platforming all these issues, but he's, you know, in retrospect, said like, I don't understand why there's, why people are, are asking or wondering about my sexuality. Like, he said, well, I wore eyeliner all the time. Like, you know, back then, that was a fucking huge deal yeah. for, for a band that had been for almost, you know, uh, seven years. This kind of like, you know, people, corn huskers are, are rocking out to REM at frat parties. Like, it's the end of the world as we know it was a fucking huge. It wasn't a novelty hit. It was a great fucking song. Kids yeah. loved it. Nobody gave a shit about sexual politics. And he had this platform. And he did start pressing some buttons with that, which I thought was fucking cool as hell. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. It was great, man. It was, I mean, it was, and at that point in my REM fandom, I was like, yeah, man, it's, it, let's alienate these motherfuckers. Like, I, yeah, I, exactly. It That's was like, Kurt I, Cobain, I knew you had Kurt it. Cobain totally followed, he totally followed that script. That's where Kurt got all of his ideas oh, about, okay, you know, I'm going to write rape me and I'm going to start wearing dresses and wearing eyeliner and stuff. It was all about the fact that Stipe had done it and not in a David Bowie way, in a way that was like, literally going up to jocks and being like i'll make out with you just to fuck with you <laughs> yeah yeah it was great i remember tour i remember we used to have these oh man i hadn't thought about this we used to have tour film like video parties at my friend's house and it was such a my so-called life kind of sassy magazine type image but of who was there and whatnot and these suburban because i mean marietta is very suburban it's like gossip girl but in the south anybody who was anything weird was there and uh yeah it was great it was like this validation of everything that i had i had thought of i continued to think of uh rem as yeah there's kind of this kind of gradual ramping up of that like over a pretty long period of time and that's certainly where it becomes like more out in the open i think like god i think monsters were really becomes 
a focus. I, I think Monster is like a queer grunge record. I think that's basically what they're going for. A hundred percent. That's, you know, the, the whole like backwards beanie cap thing and, and like being kind of a boy in a way, like he was totally doing that. It was, it was grunge as camp. I think that they're pretty much unstoppable from a chronic town through hi-fi. And then, you know, they lose Barry and that completely disrupts the balance in that band well then they plus didn't they don't you think they also really basically got derailed by the supremacy of radiohead to some extent they they were trying they were trying so hard on that what which was it up up which is the one that's like it comes out after okay computer oh god it was so slavish like this pathetic yeah we can do that wait that's come on we're rem we know i I was always into electronic shit like oh my god yeah well i think the thing that happens on up is they lose Barry and they're like, well, I guess we have to do something different. Like maybe, and like, you know, we don't have our drummer anymore. So it makes sense if we do some drum machines. So, though there's not really a lot of drum machines on the record. It's mostly session drummers. REM is a definitive example of a band that had a fucking groove. Oh yeah. I mean, Bill Barry is an exceptional drummer. He does not get anywhere near the recognition he deserves. I think especially in the early days, like his, like the, the drumming on Murmur in particular is fantastic. Like, it, like him and, uh, and Mills are just completely in this groove. That's, they don't really, they don't really go back to that Murmur groove. These guys are players who have practiced their ass off. And, and it's sort of like the Pixies in this way, like, these people took it seriously. They busted their ass and they went into the studio with producers who worked them hard. Oh yeah. And their records were tight as shit without being click track and comp to shit. And that's what killed REM for me is as soon as they started doing comped records that were just like, you know, fucking emailing each other sessions. Oh no, I think you're absolutely right. And Peter Buck, they talked about this and there was a really, yeah, I read, really I read that. Interview that came out uh, in Rolling Stone about a month ago. Um, and he's talking about like, there's this, like the, I think he's talking specifically about reveal and around the sun or it's like, like, I, I, I'm not even sure if those are records. They're just like a bunch of sounds that we kind of threw together. I like most of up. There's a few songs I think are kind of weak, but there's a lot of stuff on up that I like quite a bit. I, I I'm kind of with two minds here. So I, I think there's a lot of stuff on particularly reveal and around the sun that just aren't very good. Um, there's some songs I think are, are pretty good. I think there's like this thing where people grade those records on such a harsh curve because they're so good for so long that just being like pretty decent is like, this seems like a huge failure. It's easy to give that argument more sway when you're talking about a band as lovable as REM. Like think about that same argument applied to Metallica, whose black album I think came out around the same That's time. Like Ninety one. I mean, I, or not? I don't know. I, it would seems hard to to like sit around and talk about Metallica's Reloaded deserves a little more credit as an album on its own. In you know, on, on its own, not compared to Metallica's back catalog. It's like that album. That album just sucks, and all the REM, all the other REM albums just suck. You know, I don't. That's what I think. I don't know. Okay, but for for going the idea that we just don't like them. W- here's the distinction I make, Matthew. Is that what I think really screwed them up? Is when they stopped touring. Oh yeah, yeah. they didn't. Tu- they didn't tour at their biggest. They were selling like 15 million fucking records a year, 
And they're like, yeah, we're not going to tour. And then it's like, well, why aren't they touring? And then it's like, oh, Michael Stipe has AIDS. Like, it was so fucking bizarre. Do, do you guys remember this? <laughs> that took a well, second to say. I mean, I, yeah, I think yeah. for them, like. Because, like, how do you, you're, you're, li- you're literally, like, 24-7, right? Like, like of the 24 hours of programming on MTV, two hours is probably your videos from 91 to 93 for R.E.M. Drive, Man on the Moon, Everybody Fucking Hurts on Loop 20. I mean, Jesus Christ from losing my religion through their, their like total dominance of mainstream rock programming. But there's a reason they weren't touring because they had toured like pretty much every day for the previous eight years. So understandably, like they didn't need to. So they took a break. But then when they came back, that's, that's what I'm saying. So when they came back, what happened? Monster. Yeah. I love like monster. Monster might be actually be my favorite. So you're not going to get, I gotta go. I gotta go. See you. See you guys later. <laughs> What's the frequency can at the show? Been so drained. I had a hard time. Don't with you, the, the band itself was like, we fucked up so bad that we're going to redo Automatic for the People, and here's new adventures in Hi-Fi. Yeah, um, yeah, and that, like a, a lot of Hi-Fi is recorded on that tour for Monster, either either on stage or uh, on uh, what do you call it, uh, rehearsals, and it's most of that record is recorded on stage, one way or another. I, I like I liked Hi-Fi. I was like, okay, we got an echo. You know, they haven't totally lost it, and I think I think. I think it was a, it was a, f- a false indicator in that that when up happened it was like why why I don't I don't want you to get produced by Radiohead Sky like Joey Ronker and all these huge people were there too like yeah. oh it was so weird it was like the REM party you know it's like well Bill's out of the band so all bets are off let's just fucking you know we're one of the biggest bands in the world everybody come down to the studio and let's just fucking do it up yeah a lot of those those songs from that era are like considerably better lives like Walk on Afraid is not very good on the record but is exceptional live there's a the version that's on the the one that's is called rem live which is recorded uh from the around the sun tour is that's the that's to me the definitive version of that song Back at Automatic for the People, I, I was uh, it, to me that that album was kind of like where I realized REM were my parents, and it was like you know like like I you know like when you're a kid and you just think your parents are awesome, and then you start and then and, you know you're like a really little kid and you're just my parents are the coolest. And then you get older and you realize they're kind of flawed. That was sort of like what was going on with uh, with Automatic for the People. But you kind of 
you kind of realize your parents are wiser than than you think eventually and uh and that's what happened with automatically the people like i was like okay i'm coming around on this you guys are not totally crazy and actually some of the things like was questioning you're actually correct about like monster and and new new adventures that was like okay now you're old and now i have to take care of you and put you in a home see i think that's around the sun i think accelerate is more like you know, they, they, they recover from that and then they kind of like make a go and I'm going to live a healthy lifestyle. I'm going to get out. <laughs> and that's more accelerating. <laughs> that's good. What do the people who love those records say? I, I don't know. What do they say they love about those records? Like those are like their most popular records, like abroad. Like they're their most they're gigantic yes. popular in Japan and South America Europe. and in Eastern Europe. And yes. Uh, like they're huge in Germany and yeah. they're very big in Mexico. It's like the, the, all the world that was like really into like the first like decade and a half of their career, like they all tuned out, but everybody else tuned in. For, I, I, I don't, I can't really explain that, but that's how it happened. You know, like CDs weren't totally over in 2008, but yeah. like accelerate almost went gold. I think it sold like four hundred thousand copies. Yeah, and also, I mean, there's the, the, there's those songs got some play, and like you know, it's still like a pretty famous band, and like look, the X number of people are going to show up to support the band, or it's like, oh, there's a new REM record. It's just too there's too much other stuff in there. It's like it's not REM. Like, it's I, just I mean, not. There is a part of me that engages with the post Bill Berry REM as being like not quite the same band. Like it's the it's the. It's Jefferson it's, Starship, you know. Yeah, maybe it's, maybe there's a nicer way of thinking about that. Or maybe it's kind of like Wire when like they <laughs> lose it. That's a perfect analog, right? So Wire does like four crucial seminal records, you know, and and then they break up. And then they're like, New Order's making a fucking shitload of money. Let's do techno. <laughs> and so they're like, buzz, 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 dugga, 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 whatever the fuck. Yeah. Who cares? Sequence the shit out of it. Yeah, no, I mean, Wire. talk about how Wire is this weirdly... Uh, opportunistic band <laughs> they do you know who turned me on the wire it was rem well yeah exactly <laughs> well it's either it's either rem it's either rem or fugazi right yeah. because they you know did one to x u but oh, or, okay. or oh the, also guess, elastica the minutemen well, yeah, i'm, I got I'm sued a little younger for, but elastica right because they got sued out of court out of their ass for ripping them off but which is ridiculous and they, they probably sold more records off of people hearing about that uh, elastica than they did for probably any other reason at that point. You have these ebbs and flows emotionally where the band yeah. is there for you and then you're there for the band. You know what I mean? You have this push pull where like you're, you're so invested in making this band be a thing. And then there's other times where you have no choice and the band requires you to be in the band. And Buck has talked about this a shitload of times. He constantly bitches about his relationship with REM at different times. Yeah. Yeah, so they talk about in uh, in Metallica, some kind of monster that the band is this like entity my, bigger than the band. That's my favorite uh, music documentary of all time. Easy. Oh, it's the greatest. Oh it's god, the, there's yeah. as a drummer, as somebody who's played drums since they were fucking fourteen years old, watching Lars Ulrich in that film. It's hilarious, man! I can't get enough of it. It is seriously like. It's like being told there are people living on Mars. The idea that a band like Metallica could have existed with someone who's a member of this band and is so totally incapable of functioning as that unit in the band. Like he literally cannot play this instrument. He cannot play it. 
And somehow for 15 uh, years, this band or t- yeah, 15 plus years, this band has printed money. It's crazy. The guy does not have a creative neuron in his brain. <laughs> But somehow, somehow after they make the songs, he's able to learn how to imitate them and play them live semi passively <laughs> But the whole point is that the entire band is Kirk Hammett. Like, <laughs> like he's everything. Without him, it's like it's like McMars and Motley oh, Crue. There's no about, fucking band. You're talking about the music? I, I don't, I don't yeah, know much yeah. about that. <laughs> I just know the band. The band no, like a comic book. The other guys, the, the other guys are all action figures. Yeah, like yeah. there's no yeah. musically. I mean, there's Hammett nothing has, except Hammett him. Has all the chops. He's the one. He's like, man, yes. Metallica. Those guys shred. Yeah, Kirk Hammett shreds. Mm-hmm. That's it's funny. Now that you mentioned that uh, Matthew about about having a, a drummer with such a strong personality in the band, like uh, don't 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 go there. Oh, well, where just, you go. So we're talking about like we're talking about huge male, you know, rock guitar bands. This is a problem Pete Buck's always had with REM. He's stuck playing twang. It's tough to rock out. Yeah. That guy's got a, a punk rock chip on his shoulder. He's always been that kind of guy. He was comfortable with the Southern Gothic fables period. And then for whatever reason, the mandolin really worked for him in the nineties. But like he's he's been super frustrated because I think he does kind of want to be a, a guitar god. Despite how solid REM was, you know, even when they were solid in terms of their reputation, there was lots of frustration for those guys. Something very essential to REM is that they worked as this very tight democracy. And that's part of what happens like when, when Bill Barry's gone. And that's how it knocks everything off kilter is because Barry and Buck were kind of like one block and Stipe and Mills were another block. And once you lose Barry... Peter Buck is always getting outvoted by Mike Mills and Michael Stipe. That's why like a lot of op is very piano driven. Cause that's Mills's instrument. Right. Right. You're in a band. Like I, you know, I've had friends who've been in bands and you just kind of see it. Like it's always the same story. You just kind of see these group of people and they kind of like pair off against each other. And, you know, even if it's not an, a completely hostile thing, it's just like how group dynamics will work. So we've been talking about the distinction between, the IRS years and, uh, and, and what happened after, right? Yeah. The two Warner periods. The weird thing to me was at the height of all of the nostalgia and the, the kind of like critic driven internet hysteria, blah, blah, blah. There was so much noise about music and music history when they came out with the IRS compilation. And I feel fine yet. I feel like that entire exercise, which should have been so definitive, it kind of fell flat. If you're a kid now in 2016, who's going to convince you you need to be concerned with REM's past? Yeah. Well, God, that that's, that's what I've tried to do. <laughs> Despite how approachable and, and kind of poppy their music is, REM were hugely defined by the context they operated in, which would be obvious if you were talking about Fugazi or the Minutemen. You know what I mean? Any of those bands, of course, it's like Reagan and them. It's a war, right? REM was never explicit in their music. And yet they seem to me to be really, they need that context of like Bon Jovi and Dawkins on the radio. Right. Because for now, them because to, now for they them just to resonate. Sound, like they just sound like, Oh, it's a mainstream rock band. What's a big deal. Yeah. And, and, and for anybody who came to them after the point they're on MTV and that was normal, REM made that normal Yeah, and they get no fucking credit for it. Snake, and I was young and fever fell. 
stand. 